Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Williams has made what is, by its modest standards, a good start to the season, with a point already on the board and fears it would be off the back of the midfield pack allayed. But can it keep up this form, and what have we learned about the James Vals era so far? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and more are Mark Hughes and Scott mitchell Mound. Well, Mark, how are you doing? Already in Australia, the advance party. Yes, absolutely. Just um, abs- I'll be absolutely attuned in, in time. So no worries on that score. Yeah, it's great. Um, the weather's been a bit iffy the last few days, but it's supposed to be good for the Grand Prix weekend. So yeah, all good. Excellent. Well, it's always a race to look forward to. And Scott Mitchell, Malm, you will be heading out shortly. Yeah, you're right to laugh. I almost forgot the Malm again, which you picked me up for on a recent podcast. But obviously, you'll be wending your way to Australia fairly shortly. Such a great race to go to, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely one of those races where even though it's a massive pain in the backside to get to from from Europe, once you factor in you know flight transit times and to in and fro and from the airport at the start and the end, you know it's a thirty odd hour journey minimum. Um, but oh, it's so worth it. Like it's definitely one of those races where it, no matter how bad and difficult and awkward the journey is, it, it's just you get there and you're like, thank God this is the thing that's at the end of it because it's absolutely superb. But I cannot match Mark Hughes for enthusiasm nor pace. He is the RB19 of F1 journalists. He is days ahead of all of us at the moment. Too Too quick for me. Well, it's very important to be acclimatised, to be at your best as an athlete. So the same applies, of course, to journalists. Anyway, let's actually get on to our topic at hand, which is Williams. And we'll start off with you, Mark, because expectations for Williams weren't great heading into this season. But the perception is that it's had a better start to the year than anticipated. So can you put a few numbers on its performance level to quantify how good the start to the year is and whether things really are that much different to last year? Yes, last year Williams qualified at an average of 102.7% of pole position, which was the slowest of the 10 teams. In the first two races of this year, they've averaged 101.8%, so a 0.9 of a percent improvement. And that's measured against the Red Bull, which has generally extended the gap at the front. So the Williams is so far closer to Red Bull than last year's Williams was to last year's fastest qualifying car, which was actually the Ferrari. Even though this year's Red Bull has generally increased its advantage over the field. So Williams is closer to the ultimate pace, and it's no longer the slowest car over those two races, at least. It is, however, only just ahead of the slowest car, which has been the Alpha Tauri. Um, so significant progress, yes. 
but not yet game-changing. It's actually slightly more competitive than the 21 Williams 2, which was when George Russell was last there. So the, the picture is that it still lacks downforce, and it so it will be untypically competitive at a track like Jeddah or Monza because of the relatively low drag, as, as any downforce brings increased drag, of course. So it's a real shame that the opportunity of Jeddah was, in essence, wasted by events in qualifying. The, the, the car's true pace wasn't really represented in, the, in, in qualifying, but you, we, we did see it in bursts. So, yeah, but it, I think we've got to be careful for, uh, to um, take Jeddah as, a, as, a, as, as a, an example of that's going to be typical because, as, as I say, it's, it's, uh, most tracks won't reward low drag as much or um, punish lack of downforce. Um, so little. The only caveat we have to add to all that is obviously at the back end of last season, their average deficit was a bit closer. If you look over the f- last four races, about 2.1%, albeit with the caveat that Interlagos was a little bit distorted. But I think, as you mentioned, the fact Red Bull has taken such a step that has slightly distorted the grading curve. So pretty solid for for Williams. And overall, they could have been in the points in in both races. Obviously, Scott, as, uh, as you heard from Alex Alvin at the end of the last race, he felt that was pretty much the best that Williams has been in race trim for him. Yeah, I think both drivers are actually quite happy with how the car uh, performed and just had the performance in, in, in Saudi, which I think was, uh, as much as Bahrain was a, a positive surprise for them, the, the fact that you had the uh, certain un, unexpected elements like the like the lack of wind um, com- compared to testing, but also compared compared to the last couple of decades of, of going there. You go to Jeddah and... There's an element maybe of it the track suiting the car more because it, it's it's faster. It's there's maybe a bit more emphasis on that top speed, and we know that Williams low downforce, low drag. But you still need to have a good platform to to be able to go round the corners quickly and and, and commit to the to the high speed stuff there. Um, and so I think Jeddah was another positive surprise for for the team. But then there were just little moments where. The weekend went away for for both drivers. Albon was a bit stumped by the lack of feeling that he had in the car in qualifying, for example, but then it seemed to come alive in the race, whereas Sargent had really good performance in in qualifying. He he wasted the potential of the car, unfortunately, and then had a really good first half of the Grand Prix, but then really struggled on that longer second stint. And and that, I think, the the Logan element, I think, was partly self-inflicted. I think he pushed too hard on the tyres too early, didn't bring them in kindly enough, especially when he was in traffic and dirty air. And he kind of got to the, by the end of the race afterwards, was saying he did feel that he was responsible for his problems. So maybe that maybe that was a separate issue. But that car seems to have some quite nice usable peaks. But I do get the impression that Williams doesn't fully understand why it's been so quick sometimes. And that maybe explains why it then has the the, the, the troughs as well as the peaks. Yeah, I think in Saudi, they're a little bit thrown as well by the tyre pressures going up into Saturday. And then obviously it's, it's a track that's so sensitive to how much front flap you have in. People have heard on the radio how much there were people who were struggling with understeer. Then you dial in a tiny bit more flap and it seems to go completely the other way because it's got so many of those high speed corner entries into those S's where it's very sensitive to that. So I think that made life a bit difficult for them. The, the interesting thing is that this car, it's very much an evolution of last year's car, isn't it, Mark? So it's, it's really connected up to the progression we saw through last year. I don't think this is some dramatic fresh start it's just building on what they did last year and obviously they had that big change with the side pod configuration changing at Silverstone and 
very much has to be seen within that context rather than as a completely new direction. Yes, absolutely. It's not a it's not a clean sheet design. It's it's the car that they would have liked to have done for Silverstone last year, but would have pushed them um, over budget and then close to the cost cap as well. So um, the, 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 it involved um, you know changing the tubs to um, give it the, the the radiator cooling layout that they really wanted to do. So um, yeah, that had to wait till this year's car. So that that, that really is the this year's car really is the logical progression of the updated car that they brought to Silverstone, which was quite a lot different from the original sort of zero side pods car that they launched at the beginning of last year. And it's, yes, it's clearly um, a better direction. It's, it's been a positive direction for them. Um, but it's, yeah, we're, we're, we're probably talking marginal gains, I think. But um, it, it, it might it might lead them to a place where they have a, a fuller understanding in, in terms of what is required for this generation of car uh, for next year so yeah as long as they can just keep extracting what they can from this this car as long as they're increasing their understanding as they go along then you know they, they, there's reason to be hopeful all this uh, all this positivity does this mean that we were wrong to criticize and Williams were wrong to axe their technical director and head of aerodynamics Ed <laughs> well actually Talking about testing, Williams' own evaluation had them off the back, so they're doing a little bit better than they thought they would have been in testing, with the caveat that obviously conditions are so sensitive in Bahrain with the the track temperature and that kind of thing and the wind coming and going. But, yeah, I mean, obviously this car is fundamentally the product of that old regime. So, yeah, I mean, it's no surprise that uh, David Wheater actually posted on LinkedIn after after that points finish. Delighted to mark the end of my Williams career with signs of a very promising season ahead. So he's being positive about it. But there was a little bit of a, yeah, that that was what I did and what FX de Maison did. And he wasn't the only one. Who piled into the comments? Yeah, Jos Capito uh, responded to that, congratulating him and also mentioning FX de Maison as well. So we've got to say that any progress that Williams has made, it's not like James Vowell's came in and in two weeks has changed everything. That's not how it happens. So this does show that there were fruitful areas of research and development going on at Williams. But the interesting thing for me, Mark, and I think we might start to see this, for example, when the wind's a little bit more there, Williams has consistently, when it comes to kind of pushing things aerodynamically, struggled and found the car a little bit peaky, very, very wind sensitive. And I think that points to the weakness in aero understanding that it's had for quite a long time because it's all about pushing these cars as hard as you can and it's the fine detail that allows you to get closer to that edge without tripping over it so that's the big test for them and it'll particularly start to show when conditions vary and also when we get to a maximum downforce circuit yeah that's that's true and it's it's particularly acute with this generation of car with the, the you know since the 2022 regulations um getting the that that balance between a good um level of aerodynamic efficiency um and and having a you know a, a workable balance um both f- from the braking phase and through the corner entry and, and mid p- part of the corner that is the absolute key and the most difficult bit of of producing a good car under these regulations and um it, the 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 silverstone update of last year brought um a, a, a significant jump in the 
um, aerodynamic efficiency, but it made it even more difficult to to drive. It was overall faster, but it you know Alex Albon was saying actually in some some ways it's it's a more difficult drive than it was before. This year's car looks as though it's maintained or even progressed a little bit with the aero efficiency and and it has opened the window the the, the drivability balance, but it's still it's still limited in that way. It, it, that, that, that still is defining its limit. So, yeah, that's where they really, really need to get a, a fuller, more detailed understanding. Yeah, and when push comes to shove, ultimately, this is still a car that needs a good, strong weekend and a fair win to get into the points. So we shouldn't overly talk up the, the performance. But I think the fact that they're in there fighting, it means they are doing a bit better than anticipated. Obviously, Alex Albon had said ahead of the season opener that they still expect to be last, but they want to be a better last. And I think certainly they've achieved that and ticked that box. This is the start of quite a long process for them. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, new team principal James Vowles, he's only been in the Williams hot seat for about five weeks, so still very early days, Scott. But what have you learned about his approach to getting this team back to the front, given right now just scoring a point feels like overachievement? Yeah, you can you can see uh, you can see already a, a very concerted effort for for Vowles to imprint his way of working and how he wants the the team to communicate is. Um, it's very apparent in the way that he is talking externally, but also some of the things you hear him do internally. I wouldn't be surprised by that, considering where he's come from. Mercedes prides itself on a lot of comp- communication internally, um, lots of uh, lots of internal meetings, lots of fronting up to, to to the outside as well. The no blame culture that we always talk about, all all of that. So, with Vows, for an example of what he's doing internally is. Uh, I I heard in 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 Bahrain when he was out there for the test, but then obviously also out there for the for the first race, he went back to Grove in between. And while he he is trying really really hard to build a relationship with the people at at Grove, the the rank and file as you like to refer to them, uh, Ed, because they're, obviously you need a lot of buy in from people that he isn't actually going to see that much when he spends a hundred days a year on the on the road traveling with the race team and and, and building that bridge from track side to to base is something that I think goes back maybe 20 years at Williams in terms of there being a bit a bit of a divide so he's he's trying really hard to do that but obviously in those opening couple of weeks he was barely at the factory apart from this little trip home in between so there were daily emails going back to everybody in the team not not just those at Grove but those trackside as well and and Vals was writing them himself they they came from him it was updates on what they were doing what they were planning what sort of where they thought they were basically keeping everybody basically keeping everybody in the loop in a way that didn't happen before certainly not a direct one from from the team boss there there were technical updates that that would go back of of, of course so that's an to me that's an interesting example of how he's trying to lead by example, build that connection to to everybody, show what he's about because you have to live that kind of culture if you want people to buy into it. And and an outward example I think would be 
how much he is talking about this being a long-term project, not getting carried away with a point in Bahrain, not getting carried away with the fact that actually instead of being out and out the slowest car, which they thought they were after testing, they might be in that mix for 7th, 8th or ninth, maybe. Um, still very much explaining that there's a lot of deficit here that, and, he's, and he's open and honest about that, says that there are things that are worse than he probably thought that they would be, more outdated than they, they thought that they would be. So there's a lot of... I think there's a lot of honesty and frankness within the team and to the media and then just to, to the fans. You, you can see he's adopted that Mercedes-style uh, like fan Q&A debrief thing. He's doing a lot of first-person columns that run on, on the website. So there's, I've, I would sum it all up and say like commu- clearly communication is absolutely key to the way that Vals is trying to leave, lead the team at the moment. And for all of the pros and cons about Capito and his era... I don't think we can say that communication, clear communication, was a priority under him. Yeah, I think that's clearly the case. That's obviously something that Vowles is very keen on. There's a bit of Mercedes style in there. Plus, of course, James Vowles has got a very distinctive way of constructing his sentences, which I think is always very important. I think that was an underestimated part of Mercedes' success when there are people like James Vowles, very good sentence construction. James Allison, brilliant turn of phrase. So, Mark, bringing a little bit of that to to Williams. But (laughs) uh, joking aside... That there are signs of some of those Mercedes cultural things. I know we bore people going on about culture, etc. And that's a very, very broad term. But that is very much something Vals is trying to work on, isn't it? Yes, and he said that going in. And we can't really know how successful he is being in that for quite a few months yet. But um, he's having to do it um, going in there cold and with a big... Um, probably a, a big gap in the the technical department where you know the where the um tech director used to be and and so he's you know having to improvise there probably in in, in understanding in between going back and forwards in the between the races and building up his understanding of how that's all working and no doubt working on his plans of what he's going to do to fill that gap so yeah the, i think you, we can see the style with which um, James is attacking the the problem that he's been given, um, or the, that he has chosen to have. And I don't know when we will see the how effective it's been, and 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 behind the curtains, as it were, and what what the outcome is is going to be in terms of the uh, the, the buy in and and all the benefits that will come from that or, or not come from it if it doesn't happen. So, yeah, let, let's just see. But, yeah, he's, he's going, going about it absolutely the way you would expect him to. One of the important decisions that James Wells has got coming up, Scott, is the engine partner for 2026. They're contracted to Mercedes until the end of 25. Might sound a long way off, but obviously getting that tied down is a task for before the end of the year. So where exactly are Williams with that? Is it just carry on as before most likely, or could there be something a little bit more surprising or extreme in terms of who they go with? I would be surprised at this stage if they veer away from Mercedes, especially with with, with Vowles going there. I think... Uh, there's been a strategic alignment between those two teams for, for for years now. Obviously, going way back past this this regime it seems to work. They've adjusted their um, their way of working around that. Was was it only was it this year or last year that they took on a bit more than just the engine? It was the gearbox, wasn't it that they that they added to their technical package? 
Yeah, that was last year, Gearbox and Hydraulics. Whereas before, obviously, they'd made a big effort. It was a huge, big... It was just a classic sort of Williams old world mentality, wasn't it? It's, no, we must be independent and do this our way. It doesn't matter that we do it probably slightly worse and we spend money. We we, we don't need to on, on this. So, you know, they, they've moved in, in that direction a little bit more. There was a bit of talk in the Capito era. Maybe they were aligning themselves with Renault or aligning themselves with Red Bull, um, potentially. But I... I I think that maybe got not read into too much because there were definitely signs of it going that way. But but I think these were sort of sort of short term trends. It, it was something that suited Williams in the moment to be more closely aligned with with Red Bull. It suited Williams to 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 consider whether a Renault arrangement longer term was was better. But now you've got the ex Mercedes man in charge, and there are other priorities in the medium term rather than your engine. I I can see it. I can see an argument developing already in my head, let alone theirs, that actually it is changing the engine in the medium term, long term. Actually, the 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 priority here. I think a team, a customer like McLaren or even Aston Martin, are further along in that journey of we need a different engine supplier to be able to achieve our goals. I think Williams can achieve a lot more than they are with a Mercedes engine. So. I think they're still in the review phase at the moment. They're, they're looking at what options there are. Um, it, I'm pretty sure that even though they were, they seem to be one of the options for for Honda. Should Honda greenlight a project? Valves played that down when I asked him about that in in Saudi Arabia. So maybe he he was suggesting that they're not where they need to be to be a serious contender. And that refers to the fact that they don't really have the, everything where it needs to be back at Sakura in Japan. Um, I think they need to decide whether they're doing F1 before they tool everything up and staff the departments in, in the right way. So I didn't get the impression Williams are looking at that too too seriously. I, I can't see them taking the punt on being a new um, new engine manufacturer customer, so Audi or Red Bull powertrains, but they might decide that an alignment with Audi being the only other team there could, could be a way forward, I, I suppose. But I think that would be too much of a risk. And then... With, you've got Renault or, or, or Ferrari, really, the, the alternatives. And n- neither of those seem worth it compared to continuing with Mercedes as as far as I see it. But that obviously doesn't mean that they're not considering it. The uh, the impression I've got from Valves is that they it would be short-sighted for him to just go, I'm, a, I'm an old Mercedes man, I'll stick with Mercedes. I think he knows that they do need to at least consider what the options are. I would have thought it would be, as you say, logical for them to stick with what they've got. Obviously, Mark, there was a period when Williams was massively unstable on engine supply. They basically went BMW, Cosworth, Toyota, Cosworth, Renault, Mercedes in the course of pretty much a decade. And then they went to Mercedes in 2014. So this continuity seems quite appealing, doesn't it, for all those reasons Scott said? Yeah. And I mean, there is, you know, if if we believe various technical directors up and down the pit lane, then there's still very very little between the, the the best and the fourth best engine so you're p- putting yourself into an awful lot of logistical difficulties in changing supplier um for a, a marginal gain if if there is one um so yeah as scott said they've got um, much bigger priorities to sort out first than uh, than than finding a small possible small engine advantage from somewhere by by changing 
Yeah, I think it's just a bit of a process of due diligence at the moment, as James Wells said in the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix weekend. If you're going to get your house painted, he strongly advises you get three quotes. So I think they probably know what they're likely to go with, but just making sure they do the rounds and make sure they are getting the best deal. Scott, as we've mentioned, there's no technical director at Williams since FX de Maison left, and also the head of Aero, David Wheater, left back in the last year along with Jos Capito. What's the latest on progress with finding those key recruits? Because that's quite a big vacuum in two key positions. I think we know. Um, I think we know what kind of person will be recruited to to the technical director role and step in, Ed. If I get this wrong, but my expectation is that it will be it will be someone obviously with F one experience. They're not going to repeat the the FX gamble that, that, that Capito went with it will be someone I think from an aerodynamics background with a, or with a good grasp of overall car concept and design and I think it will be someone that hasn't been a technical director before so I think those are the three elements or there'll obviously be specific um, personality requirements skill sets within that but what do you think about that for sort of three points at the top of the cover letter? Williams will benefit from trying to be a place that's that good young in F1 terms talent doesn't necessarily mean they're super young but people who are pushing up against sort of a closed door at the top of uh, the technical leadership arrival team so it makes sense to do all those sorts of things and look for that kind of person what's very clear is they're not being impatient about the whole thing they've got David Warner there as interim technical director so I think James Wells has pretty much set out his stall particularly for the TD role to have somebody who's very much one for the future and Try and make Williams a team for the future, which it kind of has to be. That's the way you'll lure people away from bigger teams who are maybe in very, very senior positions, but not necessarily have got access to the top job. Yeah, it'll be about progression, won't it? It will be. I, I would imagine if you want F one, if you want people with good amounts of F one experience, it will be being able to offer them a position, a level of responsibility, and then a challenge that they can't get where they're at at the moment. Um, and if it's sort of more lower level aerodynamics people, engineers, mechanics, whatever, I, I can see them doing getting a lot of joy by fishing around sort of the top levels of junior categories or other championships outside of F1, whether that's, you know, World Endurance Championship, although I can imagine that's quite a fun engineering challenge at the moment in the new hypercar era, or, or anything like Formula E or maybe even GTs. Um, DTM and Formula 3 in years gone by I always felt like it was quite a good little talent pool for that but those championships are rather different now from an engineering point of view proper Formula 3 is no more and the DTM is a GT3 series so um, it'll be interesting to see sort of how they how they grow and, and stock up no no doubt that there needs to be a bit of a recruitment drive there the, the only thing I wanted to add on the sort of top level element which I'd be interested to get your point your views on is going back to the what we discussed before about obviously this being an a, a car conceived under the previous technical leadership from FX and Wheater as the the head of Aero I I I I understand why they're they're taking credit for it and I I mean it's a little bit of cringy LinkedIn behavior that I don't like but it's also not a surprise, you know, the, these interim steps, these short-term steps, when you've axed the technical leadership, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean anything about whether the right or wrong decision was made, because that that regime should have made progress on where it was the the, the previous year. They, they haven't been sacked because they're going 
necessarily going backwards or because they're absolutely hopeless. There's, there's a huge team of engineers, aerodynamicists underneath them that, that are contributing to this. And a lot of those are, are clearly very, very talented. So, so why shouldn't the car short term get better? These most senior positions are all about bigger picture, long, long-term planning. Um, and that's where Williams would have felt was 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 at risk was was the longer term element even if they weren't expecting anything particularly stunning short term as well and the comparison I draw very tentatively is James Key at McLaren as we obviously learned this week that he's he's been ousted um, when he joined he joined at a time McLaren made short term progress but it wasn't Key that created that progress he joined at the start of 2019. 2019 was the start of their revival. He had nothing to do with that car. So that was the that car was the the, the result of a lot of people that had already been working there under a, a problematic technical structure. So you can still make that short-term step with the same people pretty much. It's about where you want to go long-term and I'm not suggesting for 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 a minute that Key as a technical director was the same appointment as an FX type who has no F1 experience. But my point is more that just uh, uh, the way something can work positively over a single winter or maybe over a full season isn't how it plays out in the longer term. So that that's how I would see it, is that, that you still need that shift to have that longer term fix in place. Well, and this is the most critical decision for Vals, isn't it? Not just the technical director, but the head of aero. Because particularly on the aero side, this is an area where Williams has fallen back. You can go all the way back to the departure of Adrian Newey, which I know was 25 years ago. But they've never really been market leading in aero terms since then. And there's many reasons for that. Some of those related to the resources the team's had, because obviously it's been underfunded compared to most teams for quite a long period. So this is going to be the the, the number one decision for Vowles, because that's going to have such a profound impact on the way that the technical reorganisation works and the progress the team makes. The fact it's that axis of the two key areas, because they've also already got a team that, in terms of getting the best out of the car, I think they're pretty good trackside. So it's really an aero design, isn't it? Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is a key. And also getting someone that um, shares his vision and that can communicate well on the, on the same level so they can share a vision and each sort of be working t- together towards that. I think that's that's probably w- worth a lot as well. Um, so it's, you know, the, it, it, it's quite a, a finely balanced set of requirements. But um, I think... It's worth worth taking his time to make sure he gets it right, and I'm sure he will be, and I'm sure he'll be uh, looking at a lot of options. Yeah, it's one of those things that does take a little bit of time. I think realistically they can probably have someone who comes in at some point next year. It's difficult to get somebody immediately, and they probably have got reasonably well advanced in terms of identifying their key candidates. But yeah, I, I think this is something that Vals has stressed that just needs to take time. You don't want to do it six months quicker to get a very good but not the best candidate you want to make sure you hit the nail on the head with this one because it is so critical hi producer johnny here interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about roan a clothes brand we think you'd like i don't know about you but finding clothes you like can be tough sizes can vary from brand to brand and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable we all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. 
is versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, Scott, let's talk about drivers now, shall we? Logan Sargent, he was seen as something of a hangover from the old regime. Lots of proof coming into the air, but he's actually started reasonably well, hasn't he? Yeah, I can't remember if I said this on one of our post-race podcasts or not, but um, in Bahrain, after I think it was qualifying, I was waiting in the mix zone and I heard another journalist who was waiting there, and no no disrespect to, to this journalist, which is why I'm not mentioning them by name, because I don't think it was said out of malice, but they, I overheard them chatting to another another member of the media and and they said um that basically they didn't they didn't realize sergeant was that good and just thought thought he'd be sort of nobody at the back of the grid and i i i never i never thought that but i think that spoke to the the reputation that sergeant had or the perception of him as just another sort of pay driver or marketing choice you know he's american williams positioning themselves as f1's pseudo-american team so that that's all it was um which, which it just isn't the case and and, and is unfair and that vows was at pains to stress this in saudi arabia you know sergeant is there as a salaried driver he's a professional driver he's been picked on merit what what sergeant wasn't for 2023 was the williams's first choice it was oscar piastri then i'm pretty sure nick de Vries as well and then sergeant became an option through the year through a mix of circumstance and his own impressive performances in F2. There, there were other options Williams could have gone for. They, they picked him for a range of reasons. I'm sure the nationality, the commercial element was one of those, but I don't think it was the the decisive factor. He was a driver who through his junior, ca- junior 
career was very interesting, got a high upside, but very erratic. Um, so was quite an interesting sort of high risk, high reward kind of kind of choice. And he's absolutely been at the upper end of what I thought was possible straight out the blocks. Like if he'd have got to this level through the year, I'd have thought actually Sargent's done about maybe as well as I thought he would really. Um, but to be, I, I don't think he's lacking anything more than a 10th or two to Albon at most in, in over one lap. I know we've got a very small sample set at the moment. Um, there's a clear weakness on in race pace. I think his tyre management is weaker than than Alex's, but I think that's always the case really for, for rookies. But I, I think he's at the upper end of what could have been expected, probably maybe even overachieving a little bit compared to almost universal expectations, including Williams's. You know, Vowles admits that he was wrong about him. I, I won't go into this story now. I've been talking for, for, for long enough, but Vowles had doubts about sort of his, his ultimate pace in the past, but also over the winter, how long would it take to get up to speed? But that's not looked like a, a concern at all for us, as far as I can see it. Yeah, uh, well, they looked at him and felt he wasn't the right sort of age profile. They like a nice spread of their drivers. And that was Mercedes. He, they they being yes, Mercedes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And because Sargent didn't show himself to be kind of a, a George Russell level uh, superstar in their perception at the time, that they didn't take him. But yeah, I think the thing you have to remember with Sargent is he is there on merits there's this belief that he's got endless money behind him because of who he's related to you don't drive for sure as an f3 if you've got infinite money that just doesn't happen williams paid for him in f2 last year so yes there's some circumstances that meant the seat opened up for him but he is there on merit in in that regard i think the really strong thing though is that they've got now a two-car team now Nicholas Latifi was a frustrating driver because he could be quick, but he just struggled to put it together. He did eventually uh, interviewed him at the end of last season. He admitted that probably just adapting to the car and just being able to get the absolute most of it on the edge when things are just shifting around and the car characteristics are slightly changing was just a bit of a weakness for him. So he never really made good on that underlying performance. And of course, they had Robert Kubica before that doing a great job considering where he'd come from. But this is the first time Williams has had two drivers at a, a similar sort of level mark, probably since Stroll and Sorokin. And potentially you can say it's its best driver lineup since they had Bottas and Massa there. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, we didn't get a fair read against Albon and Jeddo, but um, it, they would have both got out of Q2 in the a, in a, in a straight running of their qualifying. Um, but, you know, you, you, you watch Logan in the early laps of practice, you know, the, the FP1 on Friday, and you, the, the sort of stage where you think you'd be the most disadvantaged against a more experienced guy like Alex. And he's just, he's not far from him at all. Typically somewhere between nothing and two tenths. You know, he's, he's, he he is genuinely, he's been quite impressive, I'd say, in terms of his raw speed. Um, As we said, he, he, he he was, he was putting an impressive looking wrist together in Jeddah, but uh, hustling the, the Haas pair for a while, wasn't he? But it, yeah, he, he just misjudged the, how, how to, use the tires over over a stint so there's still a little bit to learn there but that's that's just filling up data banks isn't it that's just um acquired knowledge as, as you, you're going about learning what you can't learn is the the basic speed and he looks to have the, the basic speed enough for, for to be a very 
solid platform to build upon. So, uh, yeah, I'd say pretty impressive so far and, and definitely worth keeping an eye on because these things, they, they, they don't progress in a linear way when you're comparing driver to driver. You know, some drivers take longer than others to maximize their own potential for all sorts of reasons. So he's shown enough to make a mental note of this guy could be good. Just by dint of the way that it works for us uh, after qualifying and, and the race in terms of how we go and, and speak to the drivers. Ed, I might be completely wrong saying this, but I've ended up just by chance hearing from Sergeant more than you directly after qualifying and the races so far, haven't I? Uh, yeah, just by the way, it's, uh, it's, it's panned out, yeah. But I would imagine that this has maybe come through a little bit because um, you're, you will have obviously heard from him at, at different points or, or read the quotes, but the the thing that that I like about him and I, and I suspect you would you would and do like uh, as well because I think it's a favoured driver trait of both of ours um, is that Logan is he he doesn't even he can't hide how annoyed he is at himself if he doesn't do a good enough job um, there's one or two drivers every year um, and I've got the impression over the first couple of races that Nick, Nick DeVries is is one of these who who just won't front up to the to something that that is there in front of everybody whether it's a lack of pace a mistake or or, or whatever there's always a bit of sort of brand management going on where whereas in, in in Saudi after both qualifying and the race like Sergeant was just so visibly pissed off at himself he he was really really irritated with the mistakes he made in qualifying and then after the race as I was mentioned earlier he he was immediately in tune to the fact that the reason that the race ended up being disappointing in the second half was probably because of him. He needed to go back and double check it, but he was already pretty sure he was responsible for that. I don't know about you, but I I bloody love that in a rookie. I think that's a great, great trait. Yeah, it's hugely encouraging. Yeah, the comparison with DeVries is interesting because whenever whenever DeVries does admit when there's things that are not going well, but it's always followed by a but and this, 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 where a sergeant does seem quite happy to do that. And Saudi qualifying was a great example. I, I spoke to Dave Robson, their head of vehicle performance, after qualifying, and he just said, yeah, it was going really well, and then it just spiralled after he made that little mistake by just uh, drifting over the, the track limits on the run to the line because that lap he did, the first flying lap, Sergeant did in Q1 was good enough for Q2 and it was deleted for that track limits infringement which was not worth time it was just drifting onto that that Qatar Airlines logo separating the track from the pit lane stupid error inattentive he wasn't the only one to do it shouldn't have done it but then it's like as Robson said he didn't quite just remember that there's still time there's still time for another run well another two runs actually he was able to get in but then he had the the mistake on on both those laps and ended up tagging the wall after going off at turn one on that that final attempt but he said that's what it is to be a rookie so for me now it's about how he takes this experience as Mark alluded to it's about how you progress from here so it's the way that he takes that experience and plugs it into his future performances learns the tyre management that will decide whether a driver who's got clearly a lot of ability and a lot of fundamental pace can refine that but I think he's made a great start one thing we should talk about which isn't Williams related but does impact Williams Mark is Alpha Tauri now there's two teams who haven't scored which is Alpha Tauri and McLaren we've got a reserve definitive judgment on McLaren until the Baku upgrade has come in and we've been able to work out whether that change of direction has made a big difference though obviously they've made a pretty awful start but Alpha Tauri is the natural opponent to Williams isn't it so what do you make of its start especially given team principal Franz Tost's critique about not being able to trust his engineers 
It's not had a great start at all. The, the car is lacking grip, especially in slow speed corners, and it's not very aero efficient either. If it's showing at Jeddah as any guide, it, it's clearly lost more time than the others through the turns in order to get competitive straight line there, and so it was generally the the slowest car of all there. I thought Sonoda put a very good race together in Jeddah. He made Magnussen's much faster Haas work really hard to get that final point off him. Um, it was probably stronger in the race than the Williams in the end, but that wasn't a fair read because Albon's day was so badly compromised. The gaps are small, and so at any given time during the weekend, the slowest car might be the Alfa Tauri or might be the Williams, sometimes even the Alfa Romero, although the, the Alfa Romero does have a, a much higher ceiling than either the Alfa Tauri or the Williams, I think. So their grid positions will be highly responsive to the effectiveness of the, the respective development c- curves. Um, Alpha Tauri says it's got some updates coming this weekend in Melbourne, so let's see. Um, but this isn't where you'd expect Alpha Tauri to be, whereas in fairness, it is about where Williams w- would be expected to be, given its recent history. But actually, Alpha Tauri's deficit to the front so far is pretty much exactly what it averaged last year, um, 101.9% off. As for Toss comments about the promises his engineers made him, um, yeah, he, he's, he's quite blunt, uh, so is France, but um, what he said, they told them, was that they said it was better than last year's car, which it is, if, if, if measured only against last year's car. But of course, it's a gap to the competition, which is the relevant bit, and the engineers have got no way of knowing that until the clock's ticking for real. So possibly a bit unfair to say they hadn't delivered what they promised, but um, yeah, it, it's 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 still not a great start. You know they, they've um, they've adapted to a regulation change, which was calculated to add half a second to everyone's lap time, and they've actually produced a car which was in Bahrain. It was two tenths quicker than last year's car, and it was seven tenths slower than last year's in Jeddah. Um, you got to treat that with a bit a bit of grain of salt in both cases because the variations in track conditions can can be in a, you know, very very significant but you know let's say a net seven tenths quicker on Bahrain and a net two tenths slower in Jeddah you need to take into account the reg change so an average of four and a half tenths over the two races which isn't enough as it turns out but uh, you know you <laughs> the engineers would be justified in saying well we didn't say anything that that was wasn't true but um yeah that the, the the car is just in in high speed, in particular, um, and, and it, it just lacks grip. And in low speed, it's it's not got a good balance. Seem to be still struggling with widening that window open um, that they were struggling with last year. Between you know, with what we talked about earlier, between getting the the car to rotate early in the corner, but not having it unstable in the braking phase. Um, and on a lot of the teams around them, or that were around them last year, seemed to have made significant progress with that with their new cars, and, and they just haven't. So, yeah, um, I think they've still got some fundamentals to uh, to uncover there. Yeah, I've been a bit disappointed with AlphaTauri. I thought they had the potential to make a, a decent step. But at the same time, Scott, AlphaTauri is a team. That there's no fundamental reason to expect it to be ahead of a lot of those midfield teams because for all its growth over the years it's still one of F1's lesser teams, isn't it? It's still the poor relation of Red Bull. Is there any reason for it to be ahead of Alpine and McLaren and Alfa Romeo and all these teams? Uh, not not really. Um, I I can see why, in one, in one sense, I can see why the new Red Bull management has questioned 
you know the purpose of of the team in 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 this form um we we did something pre-season written form and and as a video which could have come across really bluntly and unfairly if it wasn't taken in the manner intended and it was basically questioning the purpose of, of that team not asking so bluntly you know what's the point of this organization but you know what what's it what purpose does it serve it it's not a red bull junior team anymore in the sense that it's not training drivers for red bull racing uh you know sonoda sonoda is an 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 option he is on red bull's radar because of honda and as much as people think that he is only in that seat now because of Honda I, I don't think that's true I, I know that Red Bull did really like him a few years ago and he's still very young and there, there is real raw potential there that Red Bull hasn't quite given up on but you know he's not a Red Bull racing contender for the next year or two at the very least um, De Vries is just a bizarre stopgap op- op- option bizarre in the sense that he just doesn't fit Red Bull at all Red Bull racing had to go to you know, Sergio Perez and, and Checo is a great number two option for that team, especially the way he drove when he became a free agent in 2020. But he is not a Red Bull junior that, that's come through the ranks there and and and, and been honed at uh, Toro Rosso. So that organisation has has lost its way and the Alpha Tauri era is all about showcasing a fashion brand that doesn't seem to have made much of a global impact and I certainly haven't really, I've ever heard it or seen it outside of an F1 uh, context. And there are even some rumours that they're, you know, the sort of wider global expansion's not worked as as one as they hoped for and it's now been scaled back. So when you've got all of that in play and that organisation, that team still doesn't lean on the the shared parts rules as much as, as it could in terms of what it takes from Red Bull, it's... The question is, you know, is that actually getting as much out of the constituent parts as it as it could? I, I'm not convinced it is. I think that somehow that team, which used to be greater than the sum of its parts, I think is now arguably a bit less than the, the, the sum of its parts. And I don't think Red Bull should get rid of it. I think they should just reconsider how to get the most out of it. And they did have the big challenge of the new regulations. Obviously, they got pretty strong under the old regulations has been such a fundamental change that we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that one of the smaller teams although they do claim to be spending at the cost cap so they're not exactly an old-fashioned minnow or anything but we shouldn't maybe be too surprised that they're struggling a little bit with some of the subtleties of these quite tricky cars but I do think actually Sonoda has been one of the success stories for them this year he's had a couple of 11th places he stayed ahead of Kevin Magnussen for far longer than perhaps he had any right to do in Jeddah, frustrated as he was to miss out on that point. But I actually think Sonoda has been a success story for them. Yes, he's got a different teammate to compare himself against. Yes, he's had one point finish in 18 races or something. But there are signs that maybe that underlying speed he's got is coalescing into something a little bit more consistent. So that's one positive. And he has outperformed Nick DeVries, albeit with the caveat that DeVries had some kind of deployment problem with his battery in in qualifying that cost him a couple of tenths it's not entirely clear what actually caused that problem whether it was down to uh down to some other factor rather than just fundamentally a factor outside of his control but yeah interesting to see how Sonoda progresses this year well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes, for your insight. Head to the race.com. Don't forget the hyphen loads to read from 
Scott, Mark, and the rest of the team there. Check out our sister podcast, including Bring Back V10s, and also have a look at our YouTube channel. Remember to head to the Sports Podcasts Awards page as well. There's a link in the description if you'd like to vote for us for Best Motorsport Podcast. And also remember, we've got a special edition of the Bring Back V10s podcast that allows you to ask a question about any era of Formula One. Check out our Just Giving page for that. It's connected to our fundraising efforts for the charity Blood Cancer UK. We're turning our attention to Australia now, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.